Hello there, my name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. First of all, let me apologise for my croaky voice as I've got a chest infection. Waiting for it to clear up, unfortunately, would have meant missing out on a podcast, which I most certainly don't want to be doing. Gravel pits, many of which become coarse fisheries, are initially created by the commercial extraction of aggregates for the construction industry, with anglers little more than unintended beneficiaries. Many also ultimately become unintended coarse specimen waters too. As they mature, they can develop into some of the very best producers of big carp, bream and tench anywhere in the country. To better appreciate why this should be and how best to fish them, I have with me coarse specimen hunter Mike Winrow, a native Lancastrian now living back up here in the northwest after spending the best part of 25 years away at Hoddleston in Hertfordshire, where he enjoyed excellent access to some of the very best gravel pit fishing in the country. I won't go into too much detail at this stage regarding your own personal catches. Suffice to say, your CV boasts numerous bream and tench well into double figures, more of which later. Let's start by talking about the gravel pits themselves. Well, I think there's two aspects to gravel pits, actually. There's one is like the more recent digging out of them, which seems to be post-war for the aggregates industry, for the road building, like the motorway network, and presumably making concrete and whatever they do with the stuff they dig out. And then there's actually how the materials kind of got there in the first place, which seems quite interesting to me in that it seems a lot of it's down to the ice ages because it looks like a lot of gravel pits are they're often on the northern side of rivers and what they probably are is where the original course of a river and it obviously depends on the terrain that the river has flowed over essentially you've got your riverbed and then the ice ages have kind of pushed rivers south leaving the gravel and whatever from the original course close by, off the, right next to rivers. But that's left high and dry. And then, say, after the war, maybe been doing it before the war, but certainly after the war, suddenly you've had this whole industry has developed for digging them out. So that's kind of how they formed. And it seems that there's many river valleys, like it's not all of them, like certainly in the north, for whatever reason, no, it doesn't seem to occur, even though I know there's a couple of gravel pits on the Ribble, for example, and like the Ribble runs over a lot of sandstone in its lower reaches. So you do get them there, but they do seem to be more concentrated in the south. Certainly the Thames Valley has a lot, but most of southern rivers seem to have them. I know the Trent Valley's got them, Wensum in Norfolk, sort of a lot of gravel pits there, the Lee, and you even get the odd one left high and dry almost. I know there's a whole hundred plus gravel pits around Sirencester in Gloucestershire and what on earth river might have been there, who's to say, whether the Bristol Avon was once there and it got pushed further south, I don't know. But it's kind of an interesting backdrop to them. But as I say, after the war, that was when they were dug out and, um, yeah. So that's how the pits themselves are formed. But what about the water? How does that get in and, as importantly, maintain its level? I think it's often just loosely packed. It'll be the groundwater coming in. Often they have to pump them out while they're being excavated anyway. Often you've got proximity to rivers. Sometimes they can be really next to them, in which you will get coming through there. But 
There just seem to be natural holes in the ground that fill up with water, if you see what I mean. They obviously get the balance quite quickly. People aren't pumping water in in the first place to fill them up, and rain will take a long time. So I'm sure it's mostly groundwater, and then they get the balance quite quickly. But, uh, yeah, they can leak away quite quickly. If you're next to a river, I've, I've known the level of them drop quite significantly over a season, two or three feet or something like that, because it must be quite loosely compacted. But they fill up quite naturally, and yeah, they're always having to pump them out. When an extraction working is initially abandoned and allowed to fill, at that stage it's still just a water-filled hole, open to a wide variety of potential recreational uses. What is it then that makes them potentially so productive in terms of invertebrates for feeding fish, and in specimen fish terms, ultimately the ideal home? I think one thing, certainly the ones in the south, they often have a high pH value, which sort of promotes weed growth and invertebrates and things like that. Obviously the virgin fisheries, so often any fish that gets in them, the first ones often will grow big underwater anyway. But they're not just holes in the ground in many ways. From the excavating they obviously find seams of gravel where they do really well and others where they don't do so well. So you get spoil heaps and things like that. So you'll get, some pits can be really open, whereas others can have lots and lots of islands on them. And so you'll get like the margins around the islands and then you've also got the ones that the underwater islands are tight islands, but you've kind of got the bars and things like that. So a normal typical big lake might have some very deep water, but most gravel pits aren't that deep. You're getting to the teens of feet quite regularly, but you can also get ones that are really quite shallow. So they can be very rich. And you've not just got the margin round the outside, you've also got lots of other places where silt and whatever can form and get attracted and so then you get the invertebrates there and so on and so forth because they're big they're often exposed to the wind and the rain and the sun or whatever that must help as well you don't get the the leaf litter off trees because the trees aren't mature and things like that but yeah it's just a combination of things basically invertebrates usually gain access to a new water quite rapidly and reproduce very quickly indeed fish are a different matter so how do they gain access Given time, and of course the opportunity, will they invade naturally too, or are they deliberately introduced? Probably a bit of both, actually. A lot of the the aggregates companies, well actually by the end, I think there might have been quite a few, but, but by the end there was only really two of them, that sort of the, the, sort of like the big conglomerates now, like one of them, Ready Mix Concrete, RMC, that's actually been taken over by a French company called CMEX. And then there was Redlands Aggregates as well. But actually they add subsidiaries to sort of, because often as a part of the condition of being digging out the pit in the first place, they had to restore it back to public use. And so a lot of them, you might get sailing clubs on there as well. Some of the smaller pits would just become fishing. Sometimes they had to fill them back in, but obviously if they had angling subsidiaries, they would stock them with whatever they felt necessary. Obviously, because they're next to rivers, you can get flooding into them. I, I know one pit which... It got stuck with crayfish that just came off the river store, in fact, and just through flooding in there. That's the only way they would have done it. The larvae would have got in there so you could get fry fairly easily as well. And, as I say, it might be just some charitable soul chucking a couple of fish in. I, I remember actually once, one of the complex of pits I fished, one of the conditions of digging this particular pit was to actually revert it back to just the normal field at the end. And just before they did it, I 
once he'd finished the work, I had a bit of a walk along it, around it, and I saw the biggest shoal of fry I've ever seen in my life. It must have been 50, 60, 70 yards long. And presumably what had happened, somebody had chucked a couple of fish in, probably chub or something like that, from the neighbouring river Stort. They'd bred, and because there was no predators in the water, all these tens of thousands of eggs had all produced little tiny fish. So if they do get the fish in there, they will breed quickly. There won't be the predators to mop them up. And so, yes, they can get fishing quite quickly. Albeit that, from my experience, they always seem incredibly understocked for the amount of food that's in there. It's absolutely amazing. You kind of think they mustn't breed properly in there because you, th- you expect them to be absolutely loaded with small and medium fish whereas in fact they they tend to produce the very biggest fish and often not in great numbers sometimes it can produce big numbers and big catches just because of the size of them but it's a kind of a funny sort of thing but yeah the original fish from angling schemes and so on part of the condition and as i say flooding and people putting fish in and they'll, they'll soon get going anyway where a lake is big enough particularly if there's a commitment for its use as a shared activity resource, do you see much in the way of negative interaction or even hostility between sailors, anglers, birdwatchers and the like? Or does it not affect the fishing much really, and of course, vice versa? I don't think it probably affects the fishing. Anglers certainly won't be bothered with birdwatchers. Birdwatchers maybe have a different sort of thoughts on angling. Sailing, the one thing you've got to watch out for is if they come close to the shore and they catch your tackle or even your rods or something worse than that but normally common sense prevails and you get no fishing areas in the areas of where you've got the sailing clubs and they have boys out in the lakes and things where they won't come closer to the side and obviously some pits aren't suitable at all because like the ones with lots of islands no you're not going to be sailing there it's going to be where you've got more of a an open body so i don't think there's much conflict or whatever you tend to get some pits which are just sailing only and some that are fishing there's not that many which are a combination of them there's just in any one locality you'll get one or two sailing clubs because it's not a, a wide spread sort of thing so they they choose the two biggest best lakes in the area and that's what they sail on and you may or may not be able to fish them you mentioned earlier elevated ph levels and exposure both to wind and sunshine in water quality and habitat terms what else is there that conspires to make gravel pits potential specimen fish havens well, I think they're amazingly rich. They tend to be clear, even ones that are noted for carp. They have very rich weed growth, which I'm sure that helps to filter out any sort of colour. And the invertebrates you get in the weed can be absolutely amazing. If you drag it out of the side of a rake and it is absolutely stuffed with the little water beetle type things, whatever they are, and you think about the size of the lake, and there must be a huge biomass of invertebrates. It, it may be one of the reasons why they can be hard to fish, because the fish are on the invertebrates, and you need to get them onto your angler's bait. But yet, as I say, I sometimes say to my friends in the north or whatever, and they complain about weed and earlets, I say, you haven't seen weed. <laughs> you want to see a gravel pit in the middle of summer, a rich gravel pit, you will be gobsmacked how much weed and whatever there's in it. They can't not help keep the weed growth down by clouding the water, limiting light penetration. I just don't think there's enough of them in these sort of waters. Like as I say, like if like a hundred acre lake or whatever could hold a potentially huge natural population of fish. You, they always talk about natural lakes like around about three hundred pounds an acre or something like that. So multiply that by a hundred, and you're going to get oh well. I think that's 30,000 pounds or something like that, you know, like 15 tonnes of fish. But no, we, 
it's the nature of the bottom as well with the gravel i think if you have like a, a brick pit or something like that or a muddy bottom lake then they're going to be able to root in around but i think in gravel pits they probably graze more and i say they're going for the invertebrates in the weed rather than bloodworm in the silt if you see what i mean the Things may change eventually on some of them as silt builds up because they are new new lakes or whatever. But you obviously will get some colour in the summer. They, they, you, you will get things like blue-green algae and things in them. They can suffer from whatever causes in the first place, you know, like the nitrates and things like that, where you can get leakage off the land. In the south and southeast of England, you can get very, very hot summers that get that sort of growth going. But coloured water, no, you'd have to really heavily stock a to be like after be a commercial fishery gravel pit to get that something else adding to the popularity of gravel pit fishing is the fact that the records for species like bream and tench have jumped up by a good 50 percent since the 1970s in no small part due to the productivity of these gravel pits well it has to be the nature of the gravel pit itself people talked about global warming now for at least or oh, 15 20 years or something like that and certainly when i was living in the south of england I noticed that some winters you never even got a winter it seemed and obviously the springs and the autumns are are warmer as well like in the summer everything's warm anyway but I bet there's a a much longer period for them to feed and so on obviously you do get anglers bait but it seems to me that the size of some of these pits the, the anglers bait is just going to be a drop in the ocean it's more like the quality of the water Often the fish may have been the first ones introduced in, so they will grow big as well because they've got the lack of competition as well. As I say, the invertebrates that you tend to get them as well. And the one thing you can say is that for any given locality in the country, it seems that if you've got gravel pits there, that is where you will get the local specimen fish. They may not be necessarily as big as the fish in the southeast of England because it's not as warm, but if you wanted to catch a, a tenor in maybe even an 11 pound tench in the northwest you would aim for that sort of thing or you know or sort of a, a mere you think about the cheshire mears which I never fished them but they sound to me as if they were rich shallow weedy waters you know with relatively low stock densities and the fish got the chance to grow grow really big and if you see a mature gravel pit it is a beautiful lake there's no two ways about it what about the downside one which immediately springs to mind is trees on islands for cormorants to safely perch or roost in. Yes, yeah, so I suppose that that is the one downside in that they've turned out to be very good for the bottom feeding fish, the carp and the tench and the bream. They're the ones where the records of, as I say, like people can catch fish that they could have only dreamed of catching 20, 30 years ago and widespread as well if you once you can get to grip for them. But... Of course, you have had cormorants and so on moving inland probably as a result of the common fisheries policy just because they can't catch the small fish they want at the sea. So what that tends to mean is that the more silverfish species such as perch and roach and so on, which will probably have been stopped because most of the sort of like, if you took the angling subsidiaries which I mentioned earlier, they're going to put in the main species. You're not going to tend to get them stocking too much with, say, crucian carp or rudd or something like that they will put the main ones in but the cormorants because you will often get islands out in the middle of these lakes they can find places to roost and so on and so the ones that i fished 
you might have a small head of roach and perch or what in them, but they weren't prolific just because you had the cormorants on them all the time. So we've looked at gravel pits so far as a generic concept. Can we now start fleshing out the bones a little more by naming names? Where and which are the best gravel pits in the country, either for general mixed specimen hunting and or for targeting specific species, and in particular, big bream and big tench? Well, as I said earlier on, even if you don't want to be travelling miles, within your own locality, I would say that if you do have gravel pits, they will produce the locally the biggest specimen fish. They can be all around the country, but they do seem to be like, it's the river valleys and often the main river valleys. And as I say, off the top of my head, I would be talking sort of for Midlands, you'd be thinking Trent Valley, East Anglia, you'd be thinking the Wensum. Down south, you're thinking basically the Thames and its tributaries. That's where you've got them. And obviously it is warmer down in the southeast, especially around the London area. It does seem that sometimes there's like differences in the valleys or whatever. For example, I used to fish in the Lee Valley, which just ran directly north of London. And I would say recommend any of the pits there. You would, for example, have a chance of a really big tench. The record tench is actually a huge fish. It is one of the exceptional records on the books, really. But in terms of, say, catching and trying to catch a 10, 11, 12 pound tench, that would be as good a bet as any. But funnily enough, in terms of carp, for example, the British record carp's about 66, 67 pound, and yet the Lee records seem to be round about 50 pound. For some reason or other, the carp in the Lee pits didn't seem to grow quite as big as other areas in the south for, for whatever reason. So there may be local factors at play. But yes, the Thames Valley pits, like obviously these days, for carping, a lot of it is syndicate waters and paying several hundred pound a year and things like that. But from attention, bream fishing, there will be plenty of club waters. It's, it's a shame what happened with CMEX because they decided to give it up at one point or other. You could buy individual ticket waters, but you could buy coverall ticket. And you, if you wanted to do it, you would have had access to as well as river stretches, 60 or 70 gravel pits with massive fish of all species, but they started converting some to syndicates and then finally they've given it up. But as I said, for locally, it's a good or better as any. If you do get the chance, well, anywhere in the southeast is fine. Tell us a bit more now about your own personal experiences. Well, I was just a very local angler. I've, in some ways, I've missed out, whatever. For example, I knew at one point about Great Perch out of the Grey Twos, which was probably about 60, 70 miles drive from me, but I never tried it, for example. I just seemed to fish locally. But as I say, in the Lee Valley, which I fished, there was a number of pits. In fact, there was in some ways, there was too much water, and that was even despite some of them being set aside for bird watches and things like that. At the time, there was more water than land, actually. But ultimately, I I did most of it out of two pits, basically. There was a third one, and, and the two pits I fished, they were actually two pits connected together. They had different names. Well, certainly one of them had two different names. But yes, it was just like concentrating locally. And then the big thing was when we were allowed to start fishing in the old close season, which sort of, so that was from 1995 onwards. Like the interesting thing is like when I first moved south, and this kind of shows what's happened in the south, is that at that stage I'd never even had a five pound tench. And it took me a couple of years before I caught one out of this 
pit that I went round. But say ultimately I had an eleven and a half pounder out of it and a ten pounder as well and a ten pounder out of this other lake that I fished as well and I had good numbers of eight and nine pound fish. Like you never catch loads because tench aren't that sort of species. They seem to go around in smaller family groups. If I got six or seven once or twice a season I was pretty pleased with that and that's even with night fishing. Like I had the odd better catch. I remember once having 15 one night, night and following morning and I got five more the following. That was the most I ever gotten. But one or two catches where I had 9, 10, 11, that sort of style. But yes, it was the quality of the fish and the big average size. And then that was on the change. The bream, though, was a different thing entirely. I probably didn't actually fish the best chance for the bream lakes. I actually ended up ultimately fishing reservoirs at Walthamstow in North London. And I sort of like doubled the number of double-figure bream I'd caught over the previous 10 or 15 years in about, well, probably less than a year, actually. It was like, I think the second time I fished, I caught seven double-figure fish in a day. But that was like that lake was something else, but it was more down to the, the number of fish in the lake. But if it was a lake with a relatively small number of bream in, it was hard going. It would uh, they, they drive you to distraction in some ways. You get them round and you might get the odd gentle sort of bite and liners and you might get one chance of a proper bite or something like that. It was, uh, yes, yeah, so as I say, I thought at the time, I thought if you can catch bream out of a gravel pit, you can definitely call yourself a fisherman. Anyone listening to that cannot fail to have been impressed. So much so, perhaps, that as a result, they do a bit of research and head off tackle at the ready to start looking up those big bream and big tench. But unfortunately, it isn't always as simple as that. Some of these waters, for example, can be as much as 100 acres in size. Eventually, by trial and error, and after much potential frustration, they could well start to reap some rewards. So let's talk watercraft now and making the right decisions with regard to catching bream and tench. They're certainly different. I can talk more about tench in that actually, funnily enough for bream, they tend to sort of stay to round about the same spot. They're like open water to bream. And of course this is where it gets really hard because if you're just faced with a big open gravel pit, oh my god, where do I start? This is where, for the bream, doing the research probably helps, talking to other anglers, maybe talking to carp anglers, that sort of thing. If I was looking for somewhere which would make sense, would be kind of where it maybe just opens out a bit, if you see what I mean, where you might have a, a channel that opens out into a bay, or where there's a peninsula and you've kind of got bays, and you can just imagine them going in front of it or something like that. But it would be a bit of a, a long slog. You'd you'd almost have to go back to, potentially almost go back to Irish things. I used to go all that bream fishing in Ireland and we'd go fish spotting and things, looking for rolling fish and whatever. So in some ways it may be for bream because they tend to stay to parts of it. Like they obviously have patrol routes as well and I think they will follow the wind to some extent, but certainly not like carp time by the water's edge is probably as good or better as any and I suppose this is one thing where I sort of failed in that I tended to often fish only one night whereas really to get the most out of bream fishing you probably need to fish two or even three nights actually. Whereas tench, what you have to forget about is you, people think about classic tench lakes and if they imagine tench are a kind of um, a fish that doesn't move about much, a bit lethargic, all the rest of it. Fishing by the lily pads and whatever. 
But this isn't true at all, certainly not in gravel pits. They get about the place. They move around quite a lot, actually. So what I would say you look for, like obviously you should never ignore the near side margin for 10, because that's obviously a feature. And anything like where you've got a margin, such as an island or a bar or something like that. Like I tend to fish on the bottom of a bar or something like that, as opposed to the top. I'll come to that in a bit, I guess. But where there's channels and things like channels between islands, channels between bars, that sort of thing, as I said, they, they will move around a lot more than what people think. And I've even come across it in other lakes. I've caught a tension one end of a brick pit three days after I caught it at the other end of a brick pit, for example. So they get about a lot more than what people think. Depth-wise, bream don't mind deep water at all. If Potentially the deeper the better. I wouldn't be too much if I was fishing in the mid-teens for the bream. Certainly in Ireland, it made no difference whatsoever. We didn't, we didn't, we didn't mind fishing 20 foot of water. Tench, shallower water, just a few feet deep, four or five, six foot. I wouldn't really want to look for deeper than that. But yes, it's just looking for um, sort of, as I say, places where they can move through and where you can sort of ambush them and where there's a couple of possibilities to peg. I wouldn't really want to fish where it's just completely open. The other thing as well that I found, and some, I once read it somewhere, and I thought, oh, that's true, actually. And yet again, it goes back to the lethargic, people thinking they're lethargic, and that is avoid corners of lakes and things like that. People think, oh, they might just be in the corner. But because they move around, you're far better in a slightly more open sort of spot they may just not come visiting that corner very much you might just end up stuck in somewhere because they're not living there they're moving around the pit you will get some mixing up you will catch tench where you catch bream potentially but in some ways it's a never the twain shall meet it's like we're as i say channels margins bars that sort of thing that's what i'd be looking for for tench you mentioned bars and features how would you go about finding these and does the bottom substrate make any difference either well, funnily enough, actually finding them, there is a little bit of technology. You can actually even use Google Earth to um, look for bars and so on. Like They'll not be far below the surface, but as I say, if it's been done on a nice sunny sort of day, that could often give you a bit of a help on starting on these things. The other classic way, obviously, is to use a marker float, like marker float at the end of your line in a heavy lead, and just feel for the bars so to get that effect as you pull them up over the bars and so on. So say I used to like fishing at the bottom of bars where you can sort of just get that general bed of bait and somewhere for them to settle onto. And as regards to sort of bottom, well, you definitely want a clean bottom, certainly for bream. Tenture okay, a little bit of silkweed, that's fine. But the one thing you definitely don't want is blanket weed or the sort of stuff when you're dragging and it's black and horrible and stinking. That is a killer even for tench. If you're on the boilies, a fish might dig into it. But as I say, if you find that, I'd say try somewhere else. And of course, there are also steps you can take to attract and accumulate fish in your chosen peg. Well, the one thing about gravel pits is they are big lakes and very often they are underfished. And it depends on obviously where it is in relation to where you live. But I would certainly think about pre-baiting as a, a good possibility. We used to do it in Ireland. It was a very good way of gathering fish quickly. Like if we went to Ireland... If we didn't pre-bait the peg, and it was a good peg, you'd catch some fish the following day, maybe 20, 30 pound of them, and then you'd chuck more bait in, and the following day, 
you might get your £100 bag, which was the aim of going to Ireland. If you actually pre-baited, though, you didn't get the first day. You got day two straight away. You'd, you'd get your £100 straight away. So if you do get the chance, pre-baiting would be a good thing. Certainly for Tench, because you could pop down the night before, pre-bait a peg. But if they have found it and they're there, they will be there straight away. And then, well, you can take it from there. You either fish it. If you don't catch and they're not there, well, you can then try another peg or something like that. It, it just doubles your chances. As regards bream, though, it's more about their habits because bream, generally speaking, it's fishing at night. You might catch them during the day, early sort of April time or something like that. But once the weather settles into May, you are night fishing and really you might as well be there piling the bait in and then it seems that on a lot of pits, which I never did, is you need to be giving it like two or even three nights. It's like night three is the one where you might really bag up. Night one, you're just looking for fish in the, in the peg. You know, even if you don't catch any, just some sort of sign or whatever. It, it's probably a sort of thing where if there's two or three of you and you can cover the lake and swap notes and whatever, it's, that's, that's where a lone angler it probably gets quite tricky, whereas with Tench it is possible to read the lake a lot more and identify possible candidates. Tell us a bit more now regarding the types and amounts of loose feed used. Obviously with bream, anybody that knows about bream fishing, the sky can be the limit because they're in great big shoals. We're in Ireland, well, we pre-bait nowhere near as heavily as some people. We used to use like 40 or 50 bowls of ground bait for the following day and a couple of pints of maggots, castor, corn, whatever, you know, just to get them to settle onto it. As I say, when you're faced with a great big pit, you could put in vast quantities if you really wanted. For tench, because you're not likely to be catching as many, you can cut back a bit. But I, I always used to think in terms, if I went for a night, so I went down the previous evening and fished through till just gone lunchtime the following day, I'd be thinking four or five pound of ground bait all told, two or three pints of maggots maybe, because I was a maggot fisherman essentially. Corn, hemp or whatever, lots of particles. They love browsing over a bed of bait. If you ever see an underwater video, you actually see the tench settling in the peg and you're fishing away. And yet they're, they're there around all the time. You're just waiting for one of them to sort of make a mistake. In fact, I actually once had a very interesting experience on an Irish lake actually and it was like crystal clear it had a white bottom due to the I don't know presumably water snails or something that died off it was the lake was called Finn Lake and Finn in Irish meant white and because it, it had a white bottom so you were fishing in three or four foot of water on the float and like using ground bait for tension so put a few small balls of ground bait in and just like loose feed maggots over the top before you know it you saw the tension coming into the peg and before you know it, they were milling around exactly like in an underwater video. And, well, actually I could have caught more fish because I was so interested in watching the fish as opposed to watching the float. But that morning I actually caught nine tenths, they were all about three pound a piece. But the pattern was, it was classic tench fishing that the fish were there. And of course, once you were there, you realise, well, why am I chucking bait on top of them? Because they're not moving anywhere. They'd sort of disappear off for a bit and then they come back and... As the morning went on, the gap got bigger and bigger. And then finally, around about one o'clock, that was it. They'd gone for the day. Now, gravel pits are different in that 
they take time to warm up and actually round about dinner time and even into the afternoon can often be the, the best time even later in the year when the weather's settled like obviously early spring as the water's warming up you can catch it any time of the day and often late afternoon might be the best time it's different than when before there was no close season and the catch pattern was the same as well you never get tench one after another you tend to catch one and they get a gap you can't, then you might get two fairly quickly and then you might get a longer gap but actually all the time the fish were kind of there it was really fascinating stuff so it made me think I'm, I'm, I'm putting too much bait in in some ways but as I say when you're faced with a big pit you just keep putting it in and it seems to work anyway but yeah potentially a nice bed of particles ground bait whatever that they can kind of settle on and you can then sort of fish over is what you're looking for and just keep topping it up bit by bit Pre-feeding can be a costly business. So do you not run the risk of being watched and possibly having someone move in and steal your investment? Well, I think that's a case of choosing your pit and your and where you're going to pre-bait, obviously. Let's say you pre-bait overnight for tench. You're going to go down in the evening, you're going to chuck it in, and then you're going to go back fairly early in the morning. The chance of somebody actually, because a lot of these pits are, are underfished, the chances of somebody being there is pretty small, really. You could even leave a note, you know. And if somebody sees it, whatever, we used to do it in Ireland. They don't, don't think we, well, all the time we ever pre-bait in Ireland, there was never anybody there the following morning or anything like that. Like I say, on gravel pits, you don't actually have to be there at the crack of dawn. You know, like the classic tench fisher's dawn of getting up at three or four in the morning. Don't bother. Turn up about seven o'clock in the morning or something. Get fishing for about that sort of time or something fish through the warmth of the day albeit that when you do night fish you'd often find first light could be good it, it sort of when you were tench fishing overnight it was more like you were aiming to catch the, the morning after the night before you're trying to get the fish to settle on your bait overnight and you might catch the odd odd fish in the night you might even catch in the previous evening it all depended on the temperature if it was too cold you wouldn't catch if it was too blisteringly hot you wouldn't catch but if it was that nice lovely warm evening you could catch in the evening as well. So pre-baiting, if you're confident nobody's going to give it a go, and say it, it, it may be just a way of speeding things up, especially if you're trying to learn somewhere. It might give you two shots at it, basically. But for bream, as I say, it is night fishing. You, if you're fishing April time, you could pre-bait and fish during the day, because that's essentially the sort of thing we used to do in Ireland. We didn't, didn't night fish, we just used to... Uh, sort of fish during the day like start fishing about nine in the morning or even a bit later actually like fish through till four or five o'clock and go back for a tea or something like that but as I say once it seems to settle I think you might as well be at the lake and watch for things happening and then just well if you happen to see fish elsewhere move on to them or something like that you know don't don't flog a dead horse. Is there anything to be gained from say pitching a bivy whether you stay in it or not just to state your claim? Well, if it's just staking a claim, I won't bother. I'd just write a postcard out or whatever and stick a bank stick through it. That's what you do doing, doing Ireland or whatever, as I say. But whether people will be observant enough to notice it or something, I, I don't know really. I suppose these days people just go bivvying up anyway. They'd say, well, why bother pre-baiting it? If I'm going to pre-bait it, I might as well fish it overnight. The only thing is the following morning, you're not as fresh as what you'd be and will you be able to fish it properly to find out what's going on and... Sometimes when I used to bivvy up, I'd actually, I'd learned the fish movement. Like one of the spots I fished, there was, I was fishing on a peninsula, but there was a bay sort of behind me. 
and I knew the fish were there during the day and what I'd do is I'd be fishing my night spot where they kind of converge and I was hoping to make them settle on there come the following morning and hopefully get a big catch but what I'd also do just before it went dark I'd go and chuck 10 to 12 bowls of ground bait into this bay and then if they hadn't seen these settled I wasn't doing anything in the morning I'd go around there about eight nine o'clock with feeder rod or something like that and I'd often nick out a fish or two so I'd essentially pre-baited that anyway but as I say with people bivvying up these days they'd, they'd do it anyway it's how much you want to try to fish actively rather than leaving the rods to fish themselves and, and I personally would always prefer to fish actively and keep the bait going in and the feeder or something like that. so you've got the chance for them to sort of like find a bit more bait or something like that so that's why I sometimes pre-baited and then went, went and slept in my bed at home basically. Right so we've decided on a lake to fish we've found a likely looking peg and pumped in the requisite volumes of feed but we still have to catch the fish success unfortunately isn't a foregone conclusion so tactically how do we go about getting these fish out? Well, these days, I suppose most people bought big fish. And as I say, when you're fishing at night, well, obviously you are sleeping, actually. You're not actually sat by the rods or anything like that. So you, you tend to fish with these efficient boat rigs. And to be honest, they are very efficient. And even for stream or something like that, most people seem to use leads. But I just, I, I always think, well, why not use a feeder? I just used a big feeder. So I've got a little bit of extra bait as well. They tend to use PVA bags and things. But that can also limit you to what, you, what you're feeding in your PVA bag as well, albeit that bream absolutely love pellets and things like that as well. They, they love fish meal, actually. Uh, they'll tend to love it as well, actually, but tend to a bit more... Well, they've both got very wide-ranging things. But, yeah, I always say, well, let's just put... A, rather than messing about with PVA bags, I'd just put a great big feeder on, and it'll like be a ground bait feeder. Though sometimes, if I knew there was plenty of tench about, I'd use a block end full of maggots as well, because tench absolutely love maggots. So I would do that and then I'd fish what they call the helicopter rig, which is sort of but just with a short tail, like a six inch tail from the tip of my ring finger to about the base of the wrist. Any shorter you'd sometimes get a take and as you lift it in, you'd only ever hook fish in the front of the lips and occasionally you'd lift into one it'd come out, but just give that extra inch or two and it seemed to work very well. But the other thing I like to do when I say I'm more of an active fisherman, I would often I'd often fish like a lot of people like to fish two or if you've got an extra license and three parts of a peg and I certainly wouldn't mind dropping a bait in the margin but certainly for bream and even for tents I actually like fishing two rods in the same spot two feeders and I'd have one on the boat rig for the efficiency and the other I'd actually just fish on a, a standard paternoster rig like we used to use in Ireland so you'd have a, an open end feeder on a paternoster you'd have quite a long tail like I used to find with tench that give them about three foot of rope like with bream it was even longer like our bream fishing we kind of learned sort of from reading articles from people fishing the fens or whatever you know like Ivan Marks on the grey twos and they used to give them like four or five foot tails and give them enough rope and they'd hang themselves and it definitely worked but for tench yes I'd fish a, a paternoster feed on a paternoster three foot tail and have quite a long drop because tench they give you good bites people might think they give you delicate bites because yet again they think about people fishing next to lily pads but you fish on the tip It'll wang your bobbin up. Like I actually used to use plastic bottle tops actually for is <laughs> indicated really old school as opposed to uh, sort of fancier, heavier sort of ones. But yeah, by having the two rods side by side, the two baits going in and I could gauge on one. And you might miss bites on the running rig. But 
at least you felt what was going on besides and I say sometimes you'd fish two parts of the peg and but it didn't seem a good idea to have bits here and there you were best trying to um, concentrate the fish on the one bit where you thought was going to be the main spot where you're going to catch them. How long might you leave an individual bait in the water and how long would you keep putting baits out before thinking that perhaps you might be in a bad spot? I think the thing about Tench and Bream is they both show themselves. Like Bream are famous for rolling, but Tench roll a lot actually as well. Though it doesn't necessarily... You normally get Bream rolling on where they live. And that's where you're going to fish to catch them. Like you can get patrol routes. I know one of the lakes I fished, and it happened with the Tench as well. They used to go to an underwater island in the middle of the night. And that was the peg to fish at night. And you used to see fish rolling, but actually they were ready to feed, but they were actually moving to this underwater island. But normally, bream roll where they are, and that's where you fish. Whereas tench roll in the general area, you might get one bang on where you're fishing, but you might get one 15, 20, 30 yard away, but give it a chance to find it. But that's why I like to cast in, because you've got that little bait to put the home in. And as I say, I found that one time I fished in Ireland, that clear water lake, it was a shallow lake. Where did they come from? God knows. But they found it. They found it before you knew it. It's like, I remember once sort of going to a, a chat by a, a barbel expert, a guy called um, Fred Crouch. He'd caught like 10,000 barbel and he was saying, fish are just like birds basically, you know, like feed your birds in your lawn or whatever. You're nothing inside, but before you know it, they found it. How on earth did they spot it? And it's that sort of thing. So yeah, they will give the peasants away. So how long do you leave your baits in the water and stick with a particular peg? Well, as I say, you get the chance of um, seeing the fish roll rolling. And if you see them rolling, well, then you're going to stick with it. If you're actually seeing absolutely no sign of anything, then right, OK, what do we do now? If I could, if I was day fishing, I used to like to actively fish or whatever and I'd certainly like casting every half an hour or something like that. I, even when I used to night fish, I'd wake up every hour and a half and have a a recast then actually funnily enough you're kind of on edge all the time sort of style but then I suppose that's just the sort of person you are and okay you're also worried about your bait and, and all the rest of it albeit that people fish with dead maggots and well actually they fish with artificials these days like a, a great little tip is to fish a couple of artificial maggots because you kind of got the extra flotation and then you've got a sort of a couple of other live ones as well or dead, and you just get some more neutral buoyant hook or whatever and that seemed to be an edge that sort of worked anyway it certainly wasn't doing any harm but if you were tench fishing let's say you're going for two nights if you'd not done anything on the first night well you might catch on the next night but you were you weren't flogging a dead horse some of these lakes were really hard and you, you may be just fishing for well one more phrase was a fish a day you know and it might be you get nothing on night one and two on night two so you could get that sort of thing happening but you would have normally had some sort of clue that was there if it was as dead as anything well, of course, the question then is, do you want to like move your bivy and all the rest of it? Is it down to the conditions? Like, if it's horrible conditions, if it's a cold northeasterly in springtime, you've not to expect to do too much. Bream, though, that would be a harder sort of thing. That's where you've got to... I think the confidence will come in knowing that my bait's out there and I'm just going to keep it and I'm in the right spot and I'm not going to panic. Because, as I say, like when I used to bream fish at night... It'd be like the first part of the night. You kind of you knew your fate in that two-hour spell between it going dark and let's say in the springtime up to about midnight. You weren't going to start catching bream at three or four in the morning. You kind of knew what you were going to do then. And of course, 
then you kind of knew you were having to wait till the same time the following day and it's a long old day when it's like that so yeah it's uh, it's your confidence which is as i say i think for bream fishing and gravel pits you need to find one that's got a lot of fish in them if you can find the ones that have big numbers of bream which aren't that many because obviously you're getting more and more carp these days taking up the biomass and all the rest of it that will give you far more chance if, if there's not a huge population of bream but they're there that's when it can get frustrating because you just get the odd chance sort of one or possibly two chances every 24 hours which is hard going when you think about it would it be too expensive to go in for multi-swim baiting then roll between the two or might that perhaps even split fish numbers up rather than concentrating them that's not the sort of thing you could do for bream anyway i think you set your stall for the peg and that's it if you were first fishing in a gravel pit for the tench to pre-bait two i wouldn't go more than two but you're just trying to find what might be a good peg i wouldn't necessarily recommend roving for gravel pit tench but it was interesting that it worked if you see what i mean and then it's down to your pocket if i was pre-baiting though for tench i'd be thinking no more than 15 to 20 balls of ground bait so you're talking four or five pound weight of ground bait top like and then you might be talking cheap particles like hemp corn pellets and you'd probably tend to include maggots as well they're going to home in on it anyway so it's down to your depth of your pocket but it did save time because as i say when you did night fish the your really good nights were the morning after the night before when they'd settled on it and that by pre-baiting you're kind of replicating that effect whereas if you're fishing a hard lake just to turn up would be very difficult it was actually very interesting the one the lake where i got the 11 and a half pounder like in the 10 pounder as well it was a great big lake it was actually two lakes connected together and one of them was actually called 70 acres even though it was, it was probably a little bit smaller actually been backfilled but it was probably getting on for 100 acres between the two but the hot spot was the channel that connected the two lakes and there was a bridge over but there was like the four corners of either side of the channel and it was close to the car park and there's one or two other swims as well with boys and whatever that fish well but as the close season went on or the uh, what was the close season it seemed all the fish seemed to congregate on that spot and by the time you got to the end of may anybody fishing any other part of the lake wasn't catching anything they'd all kind of just homed in on this little bit and that's so so yeah they yeah as i say this one that i caught it was caught by lots of people actually it was <laughs> i caught it early may when it was quite small believe it or not but it spread its favours around a bit, that one. As I say, whether other tench caught quite as much as it, I don't know. But yeah, keeping the bait going in, if you've got the time to be able to sit on the peg, like that lake, you get the odd person fished it for a week and they might catch 20-odd out of it, like only like three or four a day, but, but so they still piled up the fish, but yeah. What about hand tackle and bank equipment choices? Well, for rods, I used to fish pound and a quarter test curve they're certainly stronger than normal flow rods i also used to fish rods like a method feeder rod or it would be like these days you can get twin tip rods where you've got an avon top and you've got a quiver tip top and if you had a powerful twin top rod i would often fish with the quiver tip or something like that but yeah typically it would be more of a specialized tench flow rod pound and a quarter test curve and a method feeder rod because you're chucking a big feeder for tench you're obviously not necessarily chucking very far like bream you may need to go 
distance but it's, it's down to your capability I wouldn't recommend trying to fish the distance carp anglers fish if you think you can great but if you can find some relatively deepish water fairly close in you should be able to fish at 20 to 30 yard range I would hope tench though no you're not you shouldn't be going that and as I say you're trying to fish accurately anyway but yeah pound and a quarter test curve rod reels just good fixable reels like with a bait runner line strength I used to fish around about eight pound some people might have fished used to fish a bit lighter but at a certain point I've got to go heavier some people might fish slightly stronger certainly use fluorocarbon line in the clear water that you get in gravel pits the business end as I say I used to use a simple helicopter rig with a feeder at the end or a, a running like a paternostered feeder you get good bites on that bite alarms some people like to fish with a slight bit of slack in the system but I used to fish with a very tight line because I didn't want to be woken up in the night by beeps I just wanted a, a run basically if I was to be woken up so I would fish with the line tight and a very light indicator like a, a washing up bottle top and if you've got a take actually what happened is you, if you, during the day you'd see it bounce in the rings and if you've actually ever seen an underwater video you'll actually see when a tench picks it up it picks a bait up or even a cock and they shake the head and they haven't yet kind of fully hooked themselves and what happens is when the bait runner goes and you get that give that's what kind of sets the hook and the fish panics and goes in the opposite direction. That's what really hooks them. But if you get your indicator bouncing during the day, you can just lift in and you've got the fish. It's just not ran off at that point. But yes, I used to fish the bite alarms. I actually used to fish with the most sensitive ones I could get so that even the slightest beep registered funnily enough despite the bobbing thing. It was like when I was fishing in there, I wanted to know exactly what was going on. So I used to use optonics but I used to have a twitcher wheel in them and like the, the wheel would spin around and it could go from seeing the, the vein of the wheel to not seeing it and very little movement would show up as an indication so when you got to run any sort of bite it was just like a continuous sort of thing and, and the other ones you used were Delkin they were very sensitive as well yeah I think that was about it like I say you want to be in a good bed chair or whatever you've got to make yourself comfortable otherwise it can be a shattering experience um, a good brew in the morning sort of style take some bacon some bacon butters but yes as I say it's like a lot of fishing it's just like locating the fish and fish with a good method in good conditions and hopefully it will take care of itself and what about hooks and her rigs well I just used to use a furlies normal size 8 hook, like a fairly strong one, sometimes barbed, sometimes barbless. I was to say I was a maggot fisherman so I didn't use to bother with her rigs. I did occasionally use to fish small boilies like start of the season, like 10mm boilies. And they're, yeah, just a simple her rig next to the hook and just 8 or 9 inch length basically and that was it. But yeah, just very straightforward stuff really. Something I have a particular interest in is keep nets. Do you use them, and if so, have you ever considered the potential risk these pose to fish? It's interesting on the keep net front, because, as I say, we used to go to Ireland, and we would go back to the same spots year in, year out. We kind of found where they lived, and of course that's the sort of thing you're looking for on the gravel pits with the bream. As I say, the tents get about the place a bit, but obviously you're still looking for the same sort of general area, and some pegs are better than others. There's, there's no two ways about it. But... Yeah, we go back to the same spot year in, year out, and we'd always catch. But if we caught, we bagged up like £100 plus and we put the fish back, if we went back the four or five days later, it never used to do anything. 
So I think it had actually shocked them. It might not have killed them, because obviously you get a lot of fish, get repeat captures, like that tench I was mentioning before. It used to be caught several times every close season, as everybody fished the same spot, and it, it kept coming out. But it obviously wasn't doing them a lot of good. But, of course, these days, a lot of people just don't do it. You see, you see the odd person, for example, on the ribble, if they're silverfish fishing. But 9 out of 10 people put them back anyway. Like, I, I used to carry a keep net with me when I was down there but it was only in case I caught a real monster like I would never really keep a bream in a keep net of any sort of size and certainly sacks you wouldn't touch them keeping them upright and all the rest of it and so on I've got an awful lot of photographs of fish just lying on the bank basically where I've just put the scales alongside them for whatever and then just put them back but one of the double figure fish I caught was like mid-morning so that was okay just keep them landing it but the other two I think the only two occasions I ever used a keep net is when I caught them and it, like, one was in the middle of the night and the other was like four or five in the morning first light and it was like well I want this for the record and I had a single fish in a big Irish keep net and I think that was perfectly fine but yeah I think the experience of Ireland of cramming fish in a keep net is not good for them anyway. Recently I read a report suggesting that if you want to catch a British record for most coarse fish species these days or a specimen representative of that record you now need to fish with high protein baits. Not only that, it also claimed that as most users of these baits tend to fish them on self-hooking boat rigs, not only was the art of fishing other baits being lost as a result, but also the old and arguably more skillful techniques that went with them, and as a result, a good proportion of coarse anglers were developing into unskilled specimen hunters with a high threshold of boredom, willing to wait for as long as it takes to catch that one special fish. Well, there's potentially something in it, but of course, if you are bivvying up, you are tired. I know from doing it to try to start fishing actively and properly the following day is not necessarily the easiest sort of thing to do. And it is a very efficient method. I know when I started using it and started fishing these lakes where you did have great big fish in it, if you missed the bite, you got a bit of a drop run or something like that, you kind of thought, that was an eight or nine pound tench I've just missed. And I'm sure that's why the rise of these and her rigs and so on, people have realised they just need to be as efficient as possible. The people that just like cast out and they leave them, well, yes, you can say they're not fishing or whatever. Like I, I used to like to think, well, at least I'm fishing actively with one rod and the other one's my efficient one for, I will nail fish on that one anyway. So it is a tricky sort of thing and it definitely does put fish on the bank. The high protein bait thing, well, that's an interesting one though, because even though I've caught a lot of big tench, like eight and nine pounders, when you think how many I've caught, and even though I've actually had three double figure fish, I sometimes think I should have had one or two more. I think it's come across people catching loads of doubles, not for certain, but I certainly seem to be able to catch more, probably because I fish more actively. I seem to catch more fish than other people, but in terms of the really big fish, they caught just as many, if not more, than me. And of course, they were often fishing boilies and things. So I was fishing maggots and so on. And there may be something in it. And even when I used to barbel fish on the lee, I remember one of the anglers there, and he's like, oh, we've been in the angling press quite a bit with some of his fish. And he says, oh, I always associate with you catching seven and eight pounders and things like that, you know. <laughs> so it may be that my method, it may be also the fact that I just keep casting it, Certainly the barbel on the lee, you, you didn't want to be casting on them very often. 
But I think for in a big gravel pit, I'm sure that makes no difference whatsoever. And it is the dinner bell ringing. You know that from fishing on the ribble for the barbel and the chub there, you know, like you can chuck out there and catch first or second cast, chub and barbel, no problem, you know, in certain pegs, in certain methods and so on. But it has kind of made me wonder. It happened on the other gravel pit I fished where there was, I say, just caught one double and the biggest fish, there was only just the odd one got to double figure fish, but for, say, for the amount I fished and the amount I caught, I would have hoped I would have caught one or two more, like not five or six or anything like that. So... That high value, I wouldn't ignore it. As an on-course angler myself, to me, double-figure weights for bream and tench sound very impressive indeed. So with the right tactics and approach, how realistically achievable are those targets? Well, I think double-figure tench, if you're, if you're prepared to go for them, and certainly if you're in the south of England, but it seems that like even, say, Norfolk pits and things like that, you know, that... Double figure fish are on the cards. You probably need to find your waters. You need other anglers about, I think. You don't you can't really do it all by yourself. Like there was one pit down there and it was like one of these days I'm gonna try it and there was one or two big name anglers I've fished it and it's a pit that has actually produced I think it's the third biggest tench in the country. And there was one chap that's fished it as a well known angler and he's had two eleven pound tension a night. This is pretty good stuff basically. But you sort of I think Often to catch these other things, you need a few anglers about who you can swap tails with and things like that. And you sort of pool knowledge. Like obviously, some people won't, won't, won't give any information away at all, but you'll always find enough that will, between the two or three of you or whatever, you can get going. And then it's almost a numbers game. It doesn't seem to be much, as a, notwithstanding what you've just asked. So I've, it's just a case of catching fish, and the bigger ones will sort themselves out. Certainly, that's when it comes to tench. You. you Sort of, yeah, just to ask around locally, asking the local tackle shop or something. Probably it's, that might be even better, better than the internet. Bream, you just need to find the lake, which has, say, got numbers of fishing. I think I think that's the thing. You've got to try to find those pits that might have a, a big stock of them. And as I say, I went on to Walthamstow Reservoirs, and this was after I'd been like bream fishing for that point, trying catching them for. 10, 15 years, and I probably had about 10, 15 double-figure fish, and yet the second time I fished it, I think I had 17 bream and 160-odd pounds, seven doubles. It was pretty straightforward. Like, it, it was a big help that I'd done the island feeder fishing because at least I knew how to fish for bream, get the bed of bait, and I could catapult accurately, and it was just a case of stepped-up Irish tactics at 50, 60-yard range with stronger line to cope with the casting. But... It wasn't that difficult if, if you were on them, and it was good bream fishing conditions. That's one thing to mention. That it'd be different at night on, on pits or whatever, but if you're fishing during the day, you want the classic wet, windy westerlies, all the Ws. That's what you're looking for for bream fishing. Tense you like nice, settled weather. You don't want to chill to the breeze or anything like that, but nice, settled weather is what is, what is good for tension. As I say, on pits, you don't have to be there the crack of dawn, sort of. Often the best time can be as it's warmed up around the middle of the day and into the afternoon. Like sometimes they can be like other lakes in that, yes, once you get to the afternoon, you've got to wait for the evening and so on. But there's enough of times when it'll fish during the day that, yes, you don't need to be at the crack of dawn. But yeah, I think from what I've seen, and when you look at the reports, even if you're just fishing locally, you will get your biggest chance of a specimen fish in a gravel pit, basically. And with regard to the records for both of those species, how tactically and where potentially do you think they will go? To be honest, it may be that, well, they could, they could be broken any day soon, though, albeit that 
The Tench record, I think, is a pretty special record because I've seen the pictures of it. And it's like £15 Arden. It's like a perfect Tench. Before that, a lot of the previous records, like £14, are really big, fat fish full of spawn. They may have had some sort of disease in there, a dropsy or something else as well. They were quite gross fish. This is a really exceptional fish, and it, it does appear in recent years that there's not as many fish coming close to that as what they are people still catch 12 to 13 pound tench every year and as i said one of the early questions actually where might be a good place to target and i mentioned lee valley but actually the other classic place is the kent gravel pits i can't remember exactly what part of kent they're in they're towards like the medway valley area but maybe not as far as that darren's area but there's like lakes like johnson's and so on and the railway lake they've always been big tench lakes but as I said, the Tench one's a little bit, maybe a bit out of reach, I would have guessed. And the Bream one, well, that's got become colossal now. That's £22. And what's happened there is, there's, I think the lake it's come out is a place called Fendrayton. But it seems that there's actually literally one or two Bream in it. And it's been caught by carp anglers. It gets caught about once every three years, it's Bream by a carp angler. And... I believe some of all rounders are trying to catch it as well, but none of us managed so far. But obviously some of these carp lakes, which have big carp and which are being getting the bait piled in, they may be the ones for the giant bream. I think when you start talking £22 bream, and I'm thinking like 10, 11, 12 pound bream are big, that's in a different sort of league. So I doubt that one's going to be broken anytime soon, but bream are a fish that, because of their nature, you don't necessarily catch them that much, if you see what I mean, so you can get surprises with them. And what do you think the general future of specimen bream and tench fishing might be, given that carp are becoming so popular these days? Well, I have to say I'm a little bit bothered about it in some ways, certainly from the bream fishing aspect, because as I say, you need gravel pits it's have a, a big population of them if you see what I mean and as I say carp just taking up more and more of the biomass and they're getting introduced into more and more places it may be that actually ultimately it could turn out to be reservoirs are the sort of place for the people that want to fish with the bream plus of course all rounders are becoming a bit of an endangered species these days you know there's like generally the last couple of decades or so fishing's become carp and commercials and so the old school anglers are getting a little bit thinner on the ground and as I say as waters get a bit harder as well and so on and so forth but tench well we'll just have to see or whatever they are more of a niche fish but as I say with the carp taking up more of the biomass it, it may get a bit harder I have to say. And with you now re-established back up here in the northwest, looking more at barbel and chub these days are your bream and tench fishing days now over? I think my bivy fishing days might be over, I have to say. It would be difficult to get back into it, having done what you've done. You'd obviously got to scale your expectations. It's down to the distance you prefer to travel, because I used to like just fishing locally in the Lee Valley, where it was only literally a few miles, and you felt comfortable. Whereas if I was here, around Preston, I feel I would have to go towards Cheshire Way, and you could fish mirrors and things like that, or there's sandy type mears as well. There's a place called, I think there's a place called Sandy Way or something, which is a Warrington Anglers. Like that sounds like that produces big fish. I think there's somewhere up near 
the M6 sort of uh, near Forton way, a bit past that one. I think that's quite well known as well. It has big carp in it. They're potential candidates, but there's nothing that I know of that's really close at hand. And do I really want to be travelling 40, 50 miles or whatever to somewhere that I don't know? And it's putting the campaign in as well. I think if there was two or three of you prepared to do it, you'd do it because then you could share things. It just makes life easy, but as a lone angler, it's not quite as simple as that. Clearly, from what Mike has been saying, not only is it possible to target bream and tench independently of species, but also being with a very good shot at isolating some of the bigger fish from the also rams. Tactics, obviously, will play their part. But so too, by the sounds of it, will investment in terms of loose feed, time and, where necessary, travel. Potential success, therefore, it seems, can be directly correlated to degree of desire to succeed. My thanks then to Mike Winrow for helping point us in the right direction here.